This episode is sponsored by Bow Lake, the most beautiful paddle boards in the world. Visit bowlake.com and learn more. That's B-E-A-U lake.com. Bow is French for beautiful. B-E-A-U lake.com. You're listening to The Luxury Item, the podcast on the business of luxury and the people and companies that are shaping the future of the luxury industry. Here's your host, Scott Kerr. Jean Patou founded his eponymous house in 1914 and reached peak popularity during the 20s and early 30s. However, after the designer died in 1936, the brand lost much of its luster. Over the years, despite having top-flight designers at the helm, it was its signature fragrance joy that kept the name alive. Jean Patou was acquired in 2018 by the LVMH Group to revive its fashion line, and Guillaume-Henri was appointed creative director. Since then, the line, rebranded Patou, has become a favorite with an international clientele. My guest on the luxury item is Sophie Brocard, CEO of Patou, a role she has held since 2018. Brokar previously worked at Nicholas Kirkwood, where she had been CEO of the London Shoe Designer. She has also held senior roles at Celine and Louis Vuitton, where she specialized in leather goods. And driving the investment in the J.W. Anderson brand after LVMH took a substantial stake in its signature business. Brokar has also been the mentor-in-chief of young talent within LVMH, notably guiding the winners of the LVMH Prize. Welcome to the Luxury Item, Sophie. Hi, Scott. So glad you could be here. Well, thank you for inviting me. So I think a great place to start here is sharing with my listeners the fascinating backstory of the Patou Fashion House, which dates back over a century. Yes, totally. So I, at first, I'm really honored to to share with your audience this incredible story of Patou, because I think it's really too unknown and it's so yeah. extraordinary. And, you know, it's the past, the present, and the future. I also want to mention that when I was asked to relaunch Patu, I didn't know much about the brand. And probably, as your listeners don't know much about the brand, and it's quite normal. I deep-dived into the history of the brand, searched for historical pieces, photos, met with people who had worked for Patu, because um, luckily there are still people in, in Paris I could meet who had worked for Patu. Not Jean Patu, but at least for the Patu brand. And most importantly, I read the books available, and I just want to um, mention the most important one, which is by Emmanuelle Paul. And really, I want to pay tribute to her because I also met her. We discussed a lot about Patou, and she's done an incredible job. So to anyone who's interested to go further on Patou, really uh, buy and read the book. And so, well, if we go to, to the history of Jean Patou, it's, as you say, really fascinating because he was such a visionary and invented so many things in fashion that are actually really still current. Uh, but I'll explain more of that later. Um, as a person, you know, he he actually um, was born in 1887. So he was part of the industrial bourgeoisie in Paris. Mm-hmm. His father had January, uh, which was dealing with some with leathers, of course, but also exceptional leathers like chagrin. We called galusha in France, and you know, in the twenties, in twenties, it was really important. And he loved colors, and I think because his father developed a lot of uh, colored leather, uh, Jean Patou also had a love of color, um, and 
Patou, uh, Jean Patou didn't want to take over the uh, the family uh, com uh, company. I think factory. I think he didn't like the smell. You know, January is smell awfully. <laughs> <laughs> and he really loved fashion, so he started the first brand in the beginning 90s, uh, nine, uh, 1910, something like that, and um, called Paris. And then in 1914, he, he really launched the Jean Patou brand. So it was not a great year to launch a brand, 1914. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the war hit, he was sent to uh, the Dardanelles, mm -hmm. and then back uh, after the war. And then... He his company had been dormant, of course. I mean, still living and still doing things, but very limited, of course, during the war. And he really launched his brand after the war. So he's very, he's totally contemporary to Chanel, and he became the most important designer with Chanel of the of the twenties. He unfortunately died quite young in the thirties. Uh, so he was in his early forties, and he died in thirty six, and uh, and. After that, his brand uh, was um, was you know taken over by his uh, sister and um, was his muse. And after went through the Second World War, also which was not uh, a great time for any uh, fashion brand. Mm -hmm. And and then there were incredible people uh, who have who have worked uh, with Patou as creative directors after the war. And I'm saying that because it's it's not only the story of Jean Patou uh, as a person, because the the brand continued until 1987, and people who worked for for Patou were Karl uh, Lagerfeld. It was its first job as creative director at Jean Patou. Uh, Michel Goma, who was the really uh, stayed a long time and did an incredible job. He unfortunately died recently, and Angelo Tarlazzi. Um, his assistant was actually Jean-Paul Gaultier. And the last creative director of Jean Batou was Christian Lacroix, uh, who left the brand in uh, 1987 to create his, old, uh, his own brand. And that's when Batou stopped doing ready-to-wear, continued to do perfumes, uh, but stopped the couture and the ready-to-wear. So the last uh, couture show of Batou was uh, Christian Lacroix. So I'm saying, what was Jean Patou's design style, aesthetic attitude, and approach to designing women's wardrobes that was new and different at that time? So completely revolutionary. He was a visionary. He was the man of, of his time. I think you, we have to remember that these, these were the roaring 20s. So really, uh, a new generation wanted to have fun, to really uh, be different from the the older generation that had caused the war. And, I, you know, I always think fashion moves in this way, you know, that the new generation doesn't want to dress like the older generation. Mm -hmm. And there are bigger changes. And I think the 20s was a big change. And he was the designer of that change. So the skirts were above the, the knees, which was a revolution. Uh, he put the waist lower. Uh, so I, I'm sure people remember the look of La Garçonne, which was... Well, in French, it's called la garçon, so it means the the the, the man uh, like a woman, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> or it's a woman. Uh, so very androgynous, actually. Um, you know, they they even they they pressed the breasts, so they didn't. People, uh, the silhouette was uh, kind of breastless. He simplified fashion. Uh, he allowed. He was very keen to allow movement, uh, but still 
having the one woman being elegant. Um, he was a, actually really, he loved women and uh, he was saying address women to undress them, which <laughs> how much he loved them. But he dressed women because he loved women and he wanted them to be active and to be able to, to move in the city because this was a time where, you know, the, the women started to do some sports and, uh, and they had no clothes for sports. And he dressed them for for to be elegant uh, when they were doing sports. So he was actually um, the first to dress the sportswoman, Susan Langland. And you know, mm -hmm. if you go and if you love tennis, yes, she's a she's a you know a, a French tennis champion. And Roland Garros has actually a court co called uh, Susan Langland. Um, and he he really invented sportswear. I even read that he invented that uh, a little um, suitcase where inside you had like uh, two um, two skirts, two tops, and some accessories, uh, and you can mix them together to go from day to night. So mm. the ideal uh, wardrobe uh, to travel, and and really when you think of it, you you think of Donna Karan and and her seven easy pieces wardrobe right. pieces. He he invented that. Uh, he invented um, also, um, you know, the 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 logo on garment, right. which what he had done before, and he did that because it what he was doing was copied a lot, and it was a way to protect uh, his uh, his garment. And we know the success it it has it has yeah. been uh, now. It's everywhere, of course. Uh, he's the first inventor of the modern show. So this is less about style, but he was a brilliant businessman also. Uh, at the time, shows were little shows with with um, kind of, um, you, you didn't mix with the American press, with the French press, with the buyers. So there was a lot of little shows. I mean, every day there was a show. But he said, okay, you know what? I want to do a big first show, which I call Répétition Générale. So he gathered everyone, and because he loved parties, uh, there was a show during the the evening, and after it transformed into a party where you know you can win. Uh, there was a tombola, and you can win a baby uh, uh, albin uh, tiger albinos. You know. <laughs> I heard there was a cocktail bar installed in yeah. in the salon. Also invented that uh, a cocktail bar in the couture um, salons. So for the for the husbands or other lovers, you know, actually to wait for for their for their women, pink, and also he had put perfume in the cocktail bar, bar, so you can test the different perfumes. So he was brilliant, and also near the cocktail at this bar, you, there was what is called the coin de rien, what he called the coin de rien, which was a little store where you could buy little gifts for your, you know your official wife maybe or you know for your daughters or right. um, he was really a brilliant businessman he, uh, I also think he invented modern PR he worked with a, a woman called Elsa Maxwell who was uh, who knew everyone and uh, helped him link with all the people who, who were important in the jet set of, of the time so like you said before, Jean Petou was considered as one of the greatest names of the 20s and 30s couture. So what I've read, he and Coco Chanel were famed for the animosity they felt for each other. So what was that all about? 
actually, you know, I didn't find a lot uh, to understand this animosity. So I can only really guess because, you know, in the books, there's nothing you can't really trace it. I am really sure that they appreciated each other fashion because actually I went to the archive of Paris and they, because of IP reasons, he photographed all his uh, collections. It's very interesting. And, and really, when you look at it, it's very... Chanel and what, what Chanel was doing at the time and what he was doing was really the same style, you know, the, 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 the love of simplicity, the love mm -hmm. of the precision, the new, the use of new materials. He also invented the modern, uh, actually the modern um, swimsuit in Jersey. So and they respected each other in terms of creativity and fashion. They were very similar in that way. Uh, I think what was very different is their lifestyle. And in a way, uh, you know, they were totally different in, in the in the way they approach life. Um, Patu was a was a womanizer. He loved women, but really, like also physically, he had uh, so many friends. And I think I I understand that uh, uh, you know women like Louise Brooks, uh, maybe some say she, uh, he, she was her her mistress, but you know it only lasted two weeks with him, something like huh. that. They they. They kept they 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 stayed friends with him. You know, he had a group of friends. It was incredible. He was friends with Charlie Chaplin. He loved to party. He loved great restaurants. He loved speed. You know, he was a French Gatsby. You know, I, I would love a biopic on him as his life because it's very exciting. He had a house in the south of France um, near Biarritz where he. He organized all this party and you would do sports in the in the day and then parties in the evening. Uh, so he was a very solar, uh, very charismatic uh, person. Um, and I feel Chanel was more, more, um, more lunar. You know, I think she, she was less about partying. I mean, maybe she did approve of him being such a womanizer. Uh, right. She was in love, <laughs> I would say, for a longer time. And also, you know, she came from very poor uh, family. Um, we know her story. He came from the bourgeoisie, so maybe also that's why he, she, they were kind of uh, not appreciating each other. Uh, what is interesting is uh, I heard Carla Geffel was saying that um, because he worked at Patu and he worked at Chanel, so he <laughs> knew right. both. Well, and you know how serious he is. He went deep dive into the archive of both, of both, and he's you know he says that only one brand could compete in in time with uh, with Chanel is Patu. Hmm. So it, it's it's a tribute that these two brands are uh, were really important and um, and kind of uh, revolutionized fashion in, in the in, in a very important way uh, in the twenties. Yeah, and you mentioned Karl Lagerfeld. It seems like a who's who of French fashion talent has helmed Patu over the years. So why was it such a rich training ground for French talent? Well, again, it's interesting because, and that's my idea of it, is again something not, not really written, but uh, I think it's it's because he died quite young and and his muse was his sister. And in, in 1936, his sister really wanted to continue the brand. And because probably she she was involved a lot in, in the in the creation, uh, she said, I'll, I'll continue the brand. 
and her husband was a businessman. So he took over the business side. And I think this kind of alignment of stars uh, made the brand continue because we have to remember that at the time when the designer was dying, actually the brand was dying, you know? Now it's current that, okay, the designer die, uh, the brand doesn't die, you know, we continue with someone else. But at the time, people had no idea that it could continue. So I think it was a very brave move, you know, in 1936 to say, no, let's continue. We have like 1,000 people working in this company and it's doing, the perfumes are doing extremely well. We, let's remember that Joy Perfume was launched, was launched in 1930 and was really an immediate success, although it was the, the crisis. Um, and they continued. And after the war, they, they hired great people. And I can't say why, uh, but they also were kind of the first to realize that, oh, we, let's put a creative director, you know? Let's let's give uh, this brand to someone who can, who has a vision and who will bring the brand forward. Uh, so they, they were also visionary because this is what so many brands are doing now. You know, if a creative leaves, we pick another one. So in 2018, LVMH acquired a majority stake in Petu and brought it back to life after three decades of dormancy. Before the relaunch, why did the label lay dormant in fashion for so long? Well, in 1987, when Christian Lacroix uh, left Petu, actually he, he left with quite a number of people in, uh, in the atelier, well, as I understand, and and Jean Demy, who was the the grandchildren of um, of the sister of Jean Patou, mm -hmm. decided to stop the couture and the ready to wear. And I think probably he was the the perfume was doing super well, and he thought the brand could continue just on perfume, and probably it was the cash machine. Uh, and for thirty years, it, it continued like that. But you know, I. My conviction is it's very difficult to have a perfume live by itself or a perfume universe without the silhouette that is given and the, and the mission that is given by by the ready to wear and the fashion. So it it was sold. Um, the perfumes were sold. Business were sold at one point to Procter and Gamble. So you know, not really probably not the best company to right. handle expensive perfume in the world which was joy and you know it it didn't uh, it didn't um, the company didn't develop uh, and and more and more it was become becoming a very niche and and beautiful perfume but you know uh, kind of uh, less and less important but the potential was there i think it's i mean clearly you you have seen the the name joy has been uh, taken by uh, by parfum dior who uh, which launched a perfume uh, named joy but also the the there is so much in her history in patu and you know i've just given some some part of it there's a lot more i could say about it uh that that every image thought oh well i think this is an incredible brand to to revive and will but will make it happen so where did LVMH see the potential in reviving the Maison? Well, I think the LVMH saw the potential because the history was so strong. Um, it, it's really not, uh, there has been so many designers. There's been a lot of historical relaunch that 
didn't work. Um, but I, I think the roots of Patu, even if people don't know about them yet, because you know it, it takes time, are really, really deep. So you were appointed as CEO of Patu at the, that time, joining from the luxury footwear brand, Nicholas Kirkwood, where you were the CEO there. What excited you about the opportunity to lead the rebirth of Patu? Well, interestingly, you know, I've worked uh, at Vuitton, so I worked in the biggest luxury company of the right. world, uh, handling, uh, billion, you know, handling billions. Uh, I worked at Celine, so mid-sized company, um, you know, also very interesting. I worked with Michael Kors and Phoebe Philo. And then I worked with J.W. Anderson and Nicholas Kirkwood, so much smaller. And, and for me, I, you know, I love the challenge, actually. And the biggest challenge felt to me to relaunch a brand. And it's both a relaunch of a historical brand, which I really deeply respect, but also a launch of a new brand. Because honestly, after 30 years of silence, uh, it's not like people knew about Batu. So I thought it was, I just love the challenge. And artistic director Guillaume Henri was also tapped to be the caretaker of the label. What vision did he bring to Patu that was fresh, yet still tapping into the heritage of the brand? Well, actually, you know, I, I had the chance to participate in, in the choice of Guillaume Henri as a creative director. And why? So there's two sides of it. I mean, first, why we chose him is because, you know, uh, we thought he... He, had, he shared the same values than Patu, and I, I think we'll, I'll go back to that, but um, he's a man of great elegance, great culture, like, like Patu. He, he, he's, he's in love with the fit, and, um, and Patu was also in love with the fit, but also he's in love with a real woman. It's not a fantasy woman, you know? He does uh, ready-to-wear for people. Uh, he wants to, to see it worn, you know? It, it's not an image uh, uh, fantasy that it, it's conceptual or uh, and it's great just some fashion are great like that but what he likes is is for women to carry what he does and um, it's interesting that even physically he, he looks a little like uh, Jean Patou who was actually dubbed you know by the American press because American loved Patou as the most elegant man in Europe um, on on Guillaume's side, uh, he was super motivated, and actually, he even talked to Elvimich about uh, Patu, even not knowing that Elvimich had bought the brand Patu, saying that this is an incredible brand. The name is beautiful. Just the name of it, Patu. You know, it's so generous, yeah. and 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 the way we we relaunched the the brand was also to pay tribute to that generosity that friendliness of the name so when was his first collection presented and how was it received so that that was kind of a big drama because <laughs> <laughs> the first collection was spring summer 2020 so imagine so we were actually delivering that collection uh, to the Italian stores who had really liked it in showrooms and they were closing due to the COVID at the same time oh. as we. So it was really the worst moment to launch a uh, first collection. And I remember telling to my team, you know, remember Jean Patou, he launched his brand in 19, uh, 1914. So it was actually even 
much worse for him because yeah. he he went to the war. He was an officer. He, right. he did the we 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 suffer. It's not easy, and um, it was a very difficult situation, of course, and difficult to handle. But really, so much less than than Jean Patou, and uh, and yeah. So I, I think that COVID year. Um, period was was difficult we we couldn't do shows uh, at the moment we actually were, were quite happy to just do presentations anyway because i i think it's it's a kind of more humble and normal way to to start we we love the idea to 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 grow step by step and um and yes and now here we are um with uh you know uh big shows and uh and a much more developed brand uh, five years after after the the first drawing. So, how is Petu positioned in the marketplace? And describe the type of customer who would love the brand. You know, so I, I think we felt there was, um, you know, space missing, uh, a brand missing in the market, and you know, nobody needs another brand, so it needs to say something and. Uh, we wanted to to say couture, but we wanted to say friendliness at the same time, and friendliness was, you know, in the tone, in the tone of voice, it, but it was also in in the in the in the accessibility. So for us, and 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 Guillaume is totally on board with that it, because he wants uh, his brand to be to be uh, uh, you know worn by Parisian. Uh, it's to to really work to offer a price that is it's luxury, but it's still something um, that um, that you know you you can buy if you if you if you save or if you um, you know you are you need to be affluent of course, but it, it's accessible and I, you know I don't I don't love it's that within word. reach. It's within reach. I think we. I was in Korea recently, and and they they really uh you know love this idea of this new luxury, which is uh which is um you know, at the entrance of luxury, let's mm -hmm. say. Right. And for us, it's part of the friendliness of, of the brand, and it's a very kind of uh, unique positioning because really when we we really work with an atelier in the heart of Paris, and 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 Guillaume draws everything so he really works like like a traditional creative uh director from 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 couture so since the relaunch are you finding many of your clientele discovering the patu label for the first time and what kind of feedback have you heard from salespeople? well interestingly i think people really understand the brand quite well um i think it's you know, we we hear that that you have the mother and the daughter who can buy patu. So it's not a question of age. Mm -hmm. I the question of uh, of style, of course. I think it's a question of 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 love of a beautiful garment, something that you will keep over the years. It's 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 not. Uh, you know, we are not positioned in like the uh, fashion of the season. Um, so it's much more a wardrobe where you you can play with it. Uh, you can buy a skirt one season, then a top another season, and mix them together. It's 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 an easy Parisian and uh, wardrobe. It's quite chic. So, um, and I think you know the 
notion of elegance might be might seem a little outdated, but we we actually love it. Uh, but it's an easy elegance, you know. It's really for for women who who work, who have kids, who and who wants to be uh, flamboyant also, you know, um, and who wants to be able to go to dinner with us with the same outf outfit. I think we 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 see great success, uh, notably in Japan, where they love the quality. You know, they are so attached to craft and quality, and this is an obsession of uh, of Guillaume. But also they love this Parisian spirit, which is totally authentic uh, in, in the Patu brand. So resurrecting a dormant fashion brand is no easy task. It seems like a combination of the right pace, slow, well, you know, long-term thinking and deep pockets obviously helps. Managing the expectations of the press and strong leadership are also essential to a successful brand revival. Do you see that as a winning formula for Patu? Well, honestly, it's so difficult to tell you why we are succeeding because it's so much, so many elements. One thing I want to say about the dormant fashion brand, because it's true, like a lot of historical brands have tried to relaunch and, and didn't work. The, the way we we approach it with Guillaume is is not to to redo uh, the pleated skirt that he invented, or you know, sportswear is everywhere now. He Champatou was such a visionary that his, you know, to put logo on on the garments is not new anymore. So what we we went into and we looked at is is it's the values. You know, he was a man of his time. He was a man who loved women, who wanted to make them beautiful, uh, who loved collaboration with friends. He collaborated with a lot of friends, and we also collaborate with with French like like uh, Astrid Villat or. Um, we are friends or we collaborated with the chocolate company called Plaque because one of the designer uh, in, in Patou is it's his, uh, her parents doing it yeah. doing brand and it's a beautiful brand uh, we are very open-minded in this way we we want also to and I think that's a, a very uh, cultural part the cultural part of the brand is very important uh, as for Jean Patou as I mentioned, uh, Guillaume is uh, is very attached to the culture of fashion, and for example, and also of France and Paris, but worldwide. Huh, it could be um, we have always to be very careful now with uh, you know cultural appropriation. But we, for example, we have prints inspired from the 18th century, modernized. We have prints inspired for Gustave Doré, who was a um, you know, a very famous engraver in France. Uh, we love to play with culture and fashion, and that is also also something uh, Patou was doing. Um, I, so it's really, you have to tap into the values uh, of a brand and, and not reproduce uh, what what was a success. The, you know, the, the, the silhouette, which was a success, it would be strange, you know, it was not a... And and I think that's that's easy in the case of Patu because he had so much values and it was so interesting what he was, uh, you know, promoting the joyfulness, the playfulness, the Parisian wardrobe, uh, the 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 elegance, you know, the love of the fit and the elegance. I believe most of your business is wholesale. How many points of sales does Patu have worldwide? 
So wholesale, we have more than 200. Um, actually, very quickly, we the wholesale stores, you know, understood what we were doing and, and really there was a, a natural fit. So our first market is Europe. We have uh, many point of sales in, in France, Italy, uh, Germany. Uh, actually, not so much. I'm sure your audience is probably more American. So we do have a few point of sales in US, like um, like Ikram, um, for example, or Blake. Mm -hmm. But we uh, we are not to develop in the US yet. Our, really, our first region is Europe, uh, and also now we have uh, the Jap Japan and Korea really important market. As I mentioned, Japan really from the beginning they came to our show and they said, "Well, we love the brand, we love the quality, uh, we we love the joyfulness, we we love what it says." And um, we actually already have uh, six uh, retail stores uh, in Japan and uh, four in Korea. And yesterday, we opened our first uh, retail store in Paris, Fighting do, Times. Do you see a time when Patu boutiques will start popping up in other select locations? Yeah, I think we'll, we'll, we'll have, we have to, uh, to concentrate on the Parisian one. <laughs> <laughs> but, but of course, of course, I think in time, uh, the natural movement is... is uh, uh, to move from wholesale to retail. Uh, I mean, it's question more to service the um, to service the client client in the in the best way. Uh, but it takes time, and uh, it's not about rushing. I think uh, we love our wholesale partners. I mean, they they do an incredible job of helping uh, rediscover the brand and explaining the brand. So it, it won't be uh, tomorrow. China became the number one focus for many companies, both for its fast-growing number of high-net-worth individuals and aspirational luxury clients. But now, given the current economic situation, the country's post-pandemic recovery has been faltering. What has Patu's expansion in China and more broadly Asia been like? So actually very different uh, in China and the rest of Asia. As I mentioned, it's been quite quick in Japan and we are, we in, we are launching in Korea. Uh, in China, we have a few wholesale point of sales, but you know we are not very present. I, I think the thing is with China, it it takes uh, a lot of communication, um, and and you know we we need to concentrate on China to 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 have the client understand our brand and you know. It's a question of language also. Uh, there are not um, so many distributors in, in, in China, whereas in, in Japan and Korea, we could find great partners. Um, so it will take more time. But again, I, I think you can't develop a brand everywhere at, you know, uh, at the same time. Um, it was natural to, to go to, to Japan, which is a much more... Uh, mature market for, for fashion. They have a lot of wholesale uh, point of sales. They have a distributor. Um, they, they naturally kind of love Persian fashion and and, um, and also the, the quality. I think China will just take more time. I'm very confident it will uh, it will happen, but we, we, we have to succeed in, in Korea first because also it's an influential market uh, for for China and and then you know, it's about in, investing in this uh, in this market when when it's the right time. 
Let's talk about the spring-summer 2024 ready-to-wear collection. Uh, what was Guillaume's inspiration behind it? So he's always inspired by, by you know, uh, a woman, uh, a French woman. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the, show, uh, the, the show before Autumn Winter, it was called Shopping Chronicle, and we had it at the Samaritan. It was more about that Parisian woman walking at a fast pace, going, uh, going to shopping she had a you know a caddie uh, which is what we used to go to the market uh, and it it was a lot of fun and very energetic and i think what he wanted to express in the spring summer collection was was a uh, that woman in the evening partying we've been asked we did what we haven't done a lot of evening until uh, spring summer and and you know our clients were telling us oh but what is your evening expression? We want our evening. So, you know, Guillaume really wanted to, to express the, the evening at, uh, at Patou. And it was really the idea of uh, long, cool summer nights uh, of music, dancing, um, great sensations uh, for, uh, you know, a summer party in, in France somewhere in a super cool location. Uh, still, you know, kind of simple clothes, you know, we never overdo, uh, but a little more stress, a little more uh, uh, fun for the evening. Is there a sustainability strategy built into it? As we we were thinking about the brand with Guillaume, uh, before even drawing, you know, uh, any garment, uh, we were convinced, both of us, that we we, we had to, to be as eco-responsible as possible and you know it's a big commitment because you know when you relaunch a brand you want to be free to choose the materials you want and all that so and and where you're a creative director it's it's a constraint because responsibility uh but really uh guillaume wanted wanted to do it and and we we didn't say we could we could do it really a hundred percent right from the beginning and uh, I think the first collection, we managed to have uh, half of uh, the materials eco-responsible. And then step by step, we are better and better. And actually, I'm happy to announce that this, uh, in this podcast that next collection, we, we are really targeting to have 100% of materials that are eco-responsible, which means certified or recycled or you know, with an eco-responsibility um, part into it. Uh, and this is uh, very important uh, to us from the start we we and we were really pioneers in this we we have uh, had a qr code in each of our garment which led to uh, information uh, on on the products so a maximum of information uh, and even some uh, most of the time a little film where you could see a worker for, from uh, from the supplier from the atelier where where the garment is made. So we were really sharing a kind of digital passport before. <laughs> now I see it everywhere. Yeah. So, but it, it really we really had that uh, really nearly from uh, from the start. And in terms of eco responsibility, I also want to share that this year we we have um, now all our uh, autumn winter collection and our essential collection in ready to wear um, uh, with a uh, with traceability 
and uh, and we also calculate the carbon impact. We calculate the kilometers uh, of each garment uh, because you know I think friendship is and we are friendly brand. It's about transparency. So it's not saying that we are perfect, but people can judge and they can see the carbon footprint. Uh, and this is the start of eco-responsibilities. You know, you have to know the data. And, and I wanted to do that actually at the beginning of the of the brand, but I found it was so difficult. I didn't find any uh, people to help me on, on this. Uh, happily, uh, this year, LVMH introduced me to this startup company called Fairly Made. And, yeah. and we- Can you talk about that? Talk about that partnership. Yeah. And well, I jumped on it because that's what I was looking from the start, you know, and I think it is so important. Um, and we work with them and to to give the traceability, to evaluate the traceability of all the garments and and um, you know the 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 consequences um, on uh, of this garment on on climate, uh, I mean, with the uh, you know carbon emission on water. Um, and and yeah, go to our website. It's very interesting. You can click. Not so many do it, unfortunately, but I think more and more. It's a little like yuka, uh, you know, mm. for fashion. You you can click on on the garment on um, on Patu cares, and you have really the history of of uh, of the garment for where the cotton is from, where it has been weaved, where it has been dyed, and where the garment is made. Ready to wear is Patu's core business, but you've quietly introduced leather handbags into the mix. The handbag market is so crowded. So from a strategy perspective, do you see handbags as a more subdued way to tell the Patu story to a younger audience? I, we didn't sit, um, you know, this way, uh, younger or older. I think it's just like we want to propose a silhouette, you know. Actually, we would love to propose a total lifestyle. <laughs> Right. Uh, but step by step and the silhouette is you know the bag is part of the silhouette uh so what is the woman the patu woman bag you know that was the question we wanted to answer what do we 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 would recommend her to to wear what what the parisian uh women wear so it had to be first it was totally natural that it could be it was a bag that you, you know, you could really uh, wear when you cycle, and uh, because you know there's so many more now. Parisian are cycling, and it's, it's also a very good thing. Uh, something you can pick up your children <laughs> at, at the school uh, without uh, having, you know, to carry it by hand. Um, that's more the the way we approached it. So not not so much on the business side, because of course we all know bags are. Are, are great uh, for for business because higher um, you know you, you know they don't have sizes so it's much right. easier to sell you don't have to put them on sale every season uh, but it was also really to to complete the the silhouette of the of the patu woman so one of the other areas that you've been involved in for a while is with the prestigious LVMH prize for young fashion designers where you're in charge of this initiative. Can you tell listeners what the LVMH Prize is and your role as mentoring director? Uh, so, yeah, uh, I, we could do another podcast. Uh, but in, <laughs> uh, in 2013, when I was hired back at LVMH, uh, 
um, I was tasked by Delfinano to work on, you know, you know, setting up this new price with uh, um, Marc Alizar, who was at, uh, at the time, um, you know, also um, on, on the working on the Elvimage price, but more on the organization side. And I was more on the fashion side. And it's really a price to, to give back, I think, to emerging designers. Uh, we, as Elvimage, you know, of course, a lot of creative directors, they, they have had brands, you know, and and it's very important for image that all these brands uh, are, need to be active. You know, it, it's very important. It's a, it's a new generation, and uh, it's it's part of non-profit. So it's not uh, we we don't invest in these brands. It's not we 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 are not uh, linked uh, uh, business-wise with these brands. So it, it's really to to help uh, every year. Uh, the, the one that have been selected by an incredible jury of uh, creative directors um, to to be on the best track as possible to develop their, their business. You know, the mentoring, I try to be, I, I think it's very unique because probably uh, I'm kind of, uh, I'm, it's very organic. I'm, I'm, I don't impose them, you know, set of rules. I, I really try to understand them to help them to define their brand because you know the branding is what is the most important really uh, on you know you can't build a business if you don't have a brand you know what does your brand say what it, what, it, uh, what does it offer and um, so it's very important to put words to to be very clear on your brand but on all the other aspects of the business you know how do you sell how do you wholesale how, how do you communicate how, how do you protect your brand in terms of ip how do you do business plan i mean it's uh one year is not even enough um and um yeah so it's really kind of being a little like co-ceo of a brand for for a year um and you know i've been mentoring more than 20 designers now and you know a lot of them are friends <laughs> now, and I, I, yeah, it's uh, I'm very grateful to have this job because it really allows me also to give back what I've learned over the years. So, what lies ahead for the growth of the Patu brand? Well, hopefully, uh, you know, a very uh, harmonious and constant development. Um, I, you know, I, I think Patu is like a, a tree that has this incredible um, uh, roots, but it's still a small tree. So people only see the small tree, uh, but the roots are very deep into the soil. And I think it can grow to a very much larger brand than it is today. It takes time. I, 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 don't, um, I don't think it's so good to be, you know, the brand of the season or because that means you you won't be the brand of next season, you know, and or the brand of the year. I think it it it's more, you know, I believe in in brand in slow but secure brand building. Sophie, so my final question is the luxury item question that I ask all my guests. So if you were stranded on a deserted island and you could only have one single luxury item with you. What would that luxury item be? It can't be any form of air or water transportation to get you off that island or anything that requires mobile service. So you can call somebody to get you off that island. It's just you 
palm trees, lots of sand, lots of ocean. What would that one single luxury item you would like to have with you? Wow, because, you know, by definition of luxury is what actually what you don't need. Exactly. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. And um, I'm a very, I'm a pragmatic and uh, I still want to survive in that deserted island. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought, you know, and that might seem like a little Amazon, <laughs> the Amazon in me, <laughs> but I really want to have a luxury knife, you know, because I think that's most useful in an island. So you know, for, for weapons yeah. and eating. <laughs> yeah, weapons and, eat, and eating. And screwdriver and all those other things. So important. The knife, you know, you cut, you cut the wood and then with the wood, you do a little fire. Uh, you can cut uh, something to protect yourself. Sophie Brocard, Chief Executive Officer of Patu, thank you so much for joining me on The Luxury Item. Thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this episode of the Luxury Item Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this useful and entertaining, I would be really grateful if you can share it with a friend or colleague. I would love it if you subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other listeners find us. The Luxury Item Podcast is a production of Silvertone Consulting. I'm your host, Scott Kerr. Until next time.